Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, History, we'll be looking at the big picture of God's rescue story from Genesis to Revelation. Today's speaker is Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon. So I think uh, one of the most beautiful things in sport, and this is going to be a surprise to a lot of you, <laughs> one of the beautiful plays in sport is the 6-4-3 double play. I mean, spring's around the corner. I've got to talk about baseball, right? 6-4-3 double play. Runner on, sec- on first. Hitter hits a ground ball to short. Short is position number six. The shortstop feels the ball. Flips it over to the second baseman who's coming towards the bag. Second baseman's position number four, right? Six, four. Second baseman catches the ball, swipes the bag with his foot, or many times does some kind of acrobatic play to get out of the, run, out of the way of the runner who's coming down hard from first base, but that's out number one. Swipes the bag with his foot, throws to his left to the first baseman. Position number three, six, four, three, who stretches with the bag under his foot, stretches and catches the ball for out number two. Six, four, three, double play. What a beautiful thing. In fact, it's so beautiful. Let's just take a moment to check it out. <laughs> here it is. Down. Here we go. Count short. it out. Six, six four, four, three. Twin killing. The Reds erase the base runner, and there's two outs here in the eighth. Hey, everyone's a World Series winner before in the spring, right? What a beautiful play. What a beautiful play. The, the symmetry, the sequence, the coming together, the timing. It's a beautiful thing to watch. A friend of mine said baseball is a beautiful game. And I have to agree, because it's not only beautiful because of the green and the symmetry and all that's around it in the ballparks, but it's beautiful because you have these sequential chain of events, things that happen that are just lovely to watch. Now, it's been our hope that this sermon series called History has done something similar to you that the 643 double play does to me. We're hoping that it creates aha moments and it creates like wonder as you realize how the Bible is tied together. As you realize the connections between the stories, although we have many people and and many writer people used by God to write the books and many different situations, you come to realize they're connected and they're connected because there's one, one person who's pushing this through. One who's connecting all the dots. It's one story, and it's a story about God and humanity, and it begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, but it's history, and it's His story. It's been our hope that this series has proven, as you've come to hear each message, has proven to bring about the sense of wonder and awe as you begin to say, okay, the God of the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, is the same as the God of the second part of the Bible, the New Testament. The God of of Abraham, Moses, and and all those dudes, that's a biblical term, dudes, dudes, is the same as the the God of Jesus and, and the apostles and the church today. You know, right at the beginning, we started this series, Aaron 
Adam's kicked off our series, and he talked about Genesis, and what we discovered was that in Genesis, God made humanity, Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden. He placed them in a garden so that they may learn how to walk in fellowship with God, and in that learning, they might have the skills developed in how to fill the world. But in the garden, we know that there was trouble brought in because of the fall, Adam and Eve chose to disobey that which God said they needed not to do. They chose to do it. Why? Because they believed a lie, the lie brought to them by Satan who came to them in the form of a servant and in a sense said, listen, God, you can't trust him really. He doesn't really have your best interests at heart. You can take on the pursuit of your own happiness, your own God-likeness. You can be like God on your own terms. He's just trying to keep something away from you, so go ahead. Take it. And we know he, he, they did that. You say, why? Well, why is because in order to have love, in order to have love, you have to have choice. And God made human beings for fellowship, which implies love. In order to have love, you have to have the decision to choice. That's the great risk of love is choice. And so we see in the, the garden is that Adam, Eve, humanity chose to believe the lie, but God, we find out, chose to continue to love. And right there in the front end of the story in the book of Genesis, he gives a promise. He gives a promise that says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make a way to be right with me that's not dependent on your performance not dependent on your goodness, not dependent on your own efforts. No, that is an impossible way. I'm going to make a way that's dependent on my goodness. And so we have the story, Genesis, and then we learn about, remember, Abraham, and in Abraham we found out what's God's message there. God wants a people, a special people, to be called his own. That's wants to get back to what we had in the garden but we find out that the only way to be made right and in God's people is by faith. Then we have Moses, and we discovered in Moses that God wants not only a people, he wants a holy people, a separate people, a different people. And that's why we have the law, because the law defines what it means to be different and living for God. But we also discovered that while the law is a standard by which we're called to live by in order to be holy, it's a standard by which we cannot live on our own, but instead... We have to be made right with God through faith, and then, and then we're free to live in gratitude by the terms of the law, being holy. Last week, Tim talked about how God not only wants us to be a people, a holy people, and then we discovered he wants us to be a royal people. God's the king. He wants children. If we're children of the king, we're obviously part of a family of royalty. And, and the definition of royalty is, is so eloquently put by Tim. He said, royalty, in effect, being the people of God who are like the king, we have, like David, our hearts are like the Lord's. Hearts after God's, like David. That's the model. That's the picture that we're called to live by. Uh, a people who are holy, who are royal, that means they belong to the king. There's hearts belong to the king and their hearts are desiring for the king's business, family business, and that is achieved by how? By faith. 
Now this morning we're going to discover a little more to this. We're going to discover from the prophets and the story of, of the times after, after David, we're going to discover that not only does God want us to be a people who are holy, who are uh, royal, but he wants us to be a people who are characterized by faith. And what I mean by that is it's not just faith that gives us life. No, it's faith that we live by. It's not just faith that gives us life. It's faith that is our life. What does he say? But apart now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, now a different way from the way of the law, the righteousness of God, the, a way to be right with God has been manifested, has become known, has become made aware and clear to all people. This way is being witnessed, is being testified, is being pointed to by the law and the prophets. The stuff of the Old Testament points to the consistency that the way to be right with God is through faith. And what we know on this side of that story, what we know is that the way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus the Son. And we're going to be talking about that in the next couple of weeks. The way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus. Now, typically, when I say the way to be right with God through faith in Jesus, I have to tell you that my mind immediately begins to think of that moment when I gave my life to Christ. Do you remember that moment when many of you gave your life to Christ? When you said, I believe? When you said, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that moment, maybe it's, it's many years ago, maybe it's fairly recently, maybe it's kind of in between that, that moment, that, that moment when, when you said, I believe, and I will act upon my belief by confessing Jesus as Lord, and, and I'll be baptized. Many of you can remember that moment of baptism, a great time, a time of celebration, a great moment, a significant point in your life when you say, uh, that is the day I experienced Salvation. That's the day I went from, from, from an enemy of God to a, to a friend of God, from, from someone who's not in the family to someone who is in the family. That's the day when I realized that now death is not my inevitable end, but life in eternity through Jesus. It was a great day, an exciting day. We think about that one event when we talk about how we can be made right with God through faith, but I want you to... Bear with me here a little bit, and I want you to recognize that there's more to that. While that is an important day, an important event, an important moment, that is not the be-all and end-all of it. What we need to realize is that that coming to faith, that moment, is just the beginning. And then ultimately what we're called to is to live a life of faith. That when he says a righteousness of God has been manifest, that concept, that righteousness of God is not a one-off event in history. No, it's something that is what's called present continuous. In other words, it is something we live in our day-to-day -day from that point on till now into the future and beyond. Not too long ago, I was sent an email, and the invitation was, come and celebrate 50 years of marital bliss with some friends of mine. 50-year wedding anniversary. Now, the question is, what do you celebrate at a 50-year wedding anniversary? What are you celebrating? Are you celebrating the ceremony? Are you celebrating the hoopla? Are you celebrating the events of the day? 
that happened 50 years ago? Are you celebrating the fact that now after 50 years you're finally out of debt for the payment of that wedding? <laughs> you know, the way we go about weddings these days, you would think that we believe that your marriage, the trajectory of your marriage is dependent upon the extravagance of your wedding. I mean, the numbers are ridiculous about people and the money and the stress. I mean, why would they have reality shows about bridezillas if this isn't one a reality of our lives? We have this idea that the, that the significance and the impactfulness and the, and the demonstration of quote-unquote of love and extravagance at the wedding is somehow, deter, is, is somehow determines the success of the marriage. But we know that's not true, isn't it? In fact... To be honest with you, the research shows the more extravagant and crazy the wedding, the more likely that marriage is going to be in trouble. What are we celebrating in a 50-year wedding anniversary? We're celebrating the faithfulness of two individuals, a husband and a wife, who after 50 years have continued to grow in love and have continued to fulfill the promises that they made to each other to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish in the ups and the downs and the arguments and, 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 the, and the intimacies, in the joys and the sufferings. We're celebrating that they have both fulfilled the promises they, they made on that day and ultimately have for 50 years pursued what marriage is really all about. The true love. Born in the day-to-day, -day, small steps of fulfilling the promises made when they made them 50 years ago. I have a friend, his name's Bob. We were in a group. Bob's mom and dad are in their 70s, been married a long time. Bob's mom had a stroke. She's been poor of health, uh, diabetes, I think, and so she had a stroke to kind of shut down the left side. It was, it, was, it was kind of traumatic, but they're thankful to modern medicine. They were able to catch it quick, and she's on recovery. But Bob went up to be with his folks. They live in the country, so he spent some time with them. And he told us in group with tears close to his, close, right there, he shared, he said, you know, the most significant thing for me is being there with my mom and dad and he said, you know, I, while everyone might be crying and, and dooming about it, what I've become is I've seen the blessing and, and the blessing of God's faithfulness. And primarily what's been really impactful to me is to see how much my dad loves my mom after all this time. And how was that demonstrated? It's demonstrated in the fact that Bob's mom can't do basic things for herself. So her dad, his dad, his dad, out of love, dresses her, brushes her hair, bathes her, cleans her, and he does it with grace, and he does it with joy and honoring humor that's all about him. He does it because... He's fulfilling his promise in sickness and in health. He does it because he's learned that it's not about the wedding ceremony. 
It's about the fulfilling of my promises over the duration of time and growing in love for this individual till death do us part. Now, in the same way, we're talking about faith. We're talking about faith. It's not an event we just celebrate and say, okay, I'm in. I go to church and I just do nothing else. No, faith, faith is living day to day being one who's, where the Spirit fulfills the promise to live by faith. Be made right with God, and then it's not nothing. No, it's we be right with God, and then we live by faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, God doesn't just want our vows at conversion. He doesn't just want us to to say, yes, Jesus, come into my life. I receive you as Lord and Savior at our baptism. No, he wants us to fulfill the promise that we made to him that we will now live with him day to day. We will be saved by faith and we will live by faith. Day to day, month by month, year by year. A life that's faithful. Get the little pun there? Faithful. Get it? F-U-L-L. Thank you. <laughs> My drummer's left, so I got this guy right here. So. Now, we, uh, we've been going through the Old Testament, and we, I want you to kind of enlarge swipes, if you'd like. There's a large section of the Old Testament that begins with Isaiah and ends with Malachi. It's a section of the prophets, and they're called minor, major and minor prophets. And the reason they're called major and minor is not because some are more important than others. It's just because of the size of the books. So the minor prophets have small books, and the major prophets have big books, right? Isaiah to Malachi. And what you find out, the role of these prophets is that they were sent to the people of God to remind them that being the people of God requires them to be faithful. Full. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, that's what the prophets do. They, they go to the people of God and they remind them, hey, by the way, God is not just about you being the people of God and enjoying that status. No, he wants to remind you that being the people of God means you have to live like the people of God and you have to be faithful. Faithful. See, we have a problem being faithful. We have a problem being faithful, particularly when things are going well. You're like, what? Yeah. We have a problem being faithful in prosperity and blessing. That's when we really struggle, being faithful. I don't know about you, when I became a Christian, I was 12 years old. At that time, I was filled with awe and wonder at the goodness of God. I didn't fully understand what I was getting to, kind of like marriage, right? Um, and, and, and I was living for God. But I was young, and I was excited, and I was filled with the sense that God loves me, and I was following him. And that may describe any one of us here. When we came to Christ, we, we, were, we were young, in, in as, as maybe not in age, but young in terms of our position with God, and we were excited, and we were filled with optimism about this new commitment that we've made. And then we start living life. 
And as we live life, we start to enjoy the benefits of being faithful to God, right? We start enjoying the benefits of, of discovering what prayer is all about and discovering the Bible and how it works and, and getting this new family called the church that comes into our life and helps us and we get into worship and we raise our hands and we get excited by the new things that we got and we are focused on our relationship with God and, and in effect what happens in, in living life at that point where we're high on faith or dependence on God and, and our confidence, the way we live by our own strength, is, is usually a little less than that. But what happens is we grow, and as we grow, God blesses us, and we begin to do better in our competence. We begin to become more uh, skilled, perhaps, in our Bible studies, and we get more skilled in the way we pray, and we begin to, to see how God works, and we become more comfortable in our life, and things start to come our way, and, and we get married, and we have children, and we gain in wisdom, and we gain all these skill sets that God is so quick to give to us, the, the gifts of the Spirit, and the, and the blessings of answered prayer, and, and we begin to grow in our competence, and we begin to recognize that, hey, we're actually pretty skillful at, at this thing called life. And our competence begins to grow. And many times as our competence begins to grow, we begin to forget, we begin to forget that our life is dependent on our God whom we just say, you are everything, you're the foundation, you're everything. And our competence begins to over, be over our faith. And we begin to trust more in ourselves and our own skills. And when we do that, we become vulnerable to danger we become vulnerable to becoming faithless and unfaithful. Now, there's a great example of this in a story about a man named Hezekiah. A man named Hezekiah. Time of Hezekiah, the unified kingdom. Remember, Tim yesterday talked about King, uh, last week David, who unified the tribes into one nation. Well, now we're on the flip side of that. The, the nations tore apart because of sin. And so Hezekiah is a king, and he's a king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. There's the northern kingdom of ten tribes called Israel, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah, who are ruled by the kings who are descendant of David. Israel are ruled by kings that turn their back on God. They are ones that turn to idolatry. And, and eventually Israel is wiped out. Judah has a mixed bag. Sometimes they're good and they follow God and lead the people to follow God. Sometimes they're not. Hezekiah was a really good king. He inherited the kingdom after his father, who wasn't a good king, and he comes in and he leads the, the nation back to God with a variety of reforms and a variety of, of courageous acts that, that bring Judah back to God. Hezekiah is high on his dependence of God in the early days and, and maybe not so high on his competence, but we're told that he gets, he's blessed and he's skilled and, he's, and he grows and, as a person and, and as a king. And, and in fact, we're told that God pours out much blessing on him because of his faithfulness. Check this out, Second Chronicles, it says this, Hezekiah had, a, had, had very great wealth and honor. He made treasuries for his silver and gold and for his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuables. This is Second Chronicles 32, 27 to 31. He also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine, and olive oil. And he made stalls of various kind, for, of, for various kinds of cattle and pens for the flock. He built villages and acquired great numbers of flocks and herds, for God had given him very great riches. It was Hezekiah 
who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David, he succeeded in everything he undertook. Hezekiah was a man of faith, but he was a man of competence. And his competence and his skill obviously was, was shown in just how successful he was at life. You know this thing, he's talking about the blocking of the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring. Well, what he's talking about is a tunnel that Hezekiah ordered to be built and ingeniously crafted in order to change the direction or change the source of where Jerusalem got its water. And uh, not too long ago, we were in Israel, my wife and I, Tim and Angie Peace, and we were visiting the old city of David. And guess what we got to do? We got to walk in that tunnel. We got to walk in the tunnel. Check, check it out. Here's the tunnel. Now, you can see the dotted lines. Right there at, the, at the, that building at the far right, I don't have my little pointy thing, that's the spring of Gihon. It's number two, right? Can you see that? Right? You see, that's Hezekiah. That's the source of water for the city of Jerusalem. He builds a tunnel, blocks the original entrance, and builds a tunnel that channels the water to the other side at three, where it ends up in the, the pool of Siloam right there. But he builds that tunnel. Now, notice that tunnel. It's not very straight, is it? And it's not very, uh, it is not very like, logical in its way, but it's a tunnel that he builds, and it's a tunnel that's built by two crews. One starts at the one end, and one starts at the other, and they kind of and get together. Pretty amazing. And I'm like, take another picture. Here's, here's Tim and Angie in the tunnel, all right? It's pretty cool. The water's still flowing, so the water comes up to you here at different places. Uh, that's a neat picture of you guys. All right, Tim and Angie in the tunnel. You see how close it is? But you actually see the pick marks, and you can see where it is. And what's cool is as you're walking along, from the beginning, we started the, at the Gihon side. As you're walking along, all of a sudden, the roof's kind of close, and then all of a sudden, it shoots up. Well, the reason is that's where Team 2 met them. Team 2 were a little higher than Team 1, and they were like, ooh, oh, Schneikies, I guess that's what they say in Hebrew. Uh, and so they kind of cut it up, and that's what you get. But what I, I'm walking through this in the dark. I had a headlamp, and I'm leading the crew, and I'm thinking, how did they do this? No modern GPS systems, no modern engineering, and, and it's like, doo -doo 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 -doo. but yet they met exactly where they needed to meet, and they channeled the water from one side to the other. Unbelievable ingenuity, unbelievable bit of engineering, unbelievable. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a testimony to Hezekiah's genius. Talk about a man of competence. Talk about a man who had answers. Talk about a man who could achieve stuff in life. No wonder he was blessed of God. Wow. Now, the reason why they had to dig this tunnel is because of a threat threat of the superpower called Assyria. The Syrians were bad, bad dudes. I mean, they were masters of warfare. They ravaged families and developed torture and execution techniques were gruesome. They did things like putting a hook through the palate of their kings they defeated right through the front and dragging them all the way back to their capital or massacring people and laying them all down on the road and having their armies march over them while the people watched. They're the ones that came up with execution of crucifixion. These guys were bad dudes. 
and they knew how to destroy countries. And God used the Assyrians to bring about judgment. I told you Israel, the, the northern kingdom, turned away from God, and Assyria was the, the means of judgment to those people. And so during the time of, of Hezekiah, Assyria invades the northern kingdom and defeats the northern kingdom. Now, during the time of Hezekiah, his prophet, the man charged by God to remind him to remain faithful, is a guy called Isaiah. News of the conquest or the conquering of the northern kingdom caused Hezekiah to think, you know what? We are vulnerable in our water source. We need to do something to protect us when the, when the Assyrians come. We don't want them poisoning our water or we don't want them to go in through that tunnel and come out and, and attack us. And that's why he made the tunnel. He relied on his own competence and skill. In fact, the story tells us that after the, the destruction of Israel, Hezekiah is trying to get ahead of the game, and he sends kind of a, a peace offering to the king of Assyria. He takes the gold and riches out of the very temple of God, and he puts them together, and he sends them to, to the king of Assyria and says, basically, hey, I'm your friend, buddy, buddy. Don't take on me. He relies on his own competence. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because the Assyrians continue to come and they are at Jerusalem's doorstep and he comes to the point where he realizes his competence is inadequate to deal with the issue and what does he do? As a man of faith, he turns to God. Which is what we all do when trouble comes, don't we? If we're Jesus followers, we, 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 we live by our confidence thinking we're in charge and we're, we're doing our own thing and then all of a sudden we find a situation beyond our competence and then we're like, dear God, please help me. Dear Jesus, help me. I, I need you. I, I want to rely on you. Help me through this difficulty, right? Well, that's what he does. And he turns to Isaiah and he prays. And, and Isaiah says, hey, you know what? Hezekiah, because you've done this, God says he's going to deliver you. And he delivers him and the people in a very miraculous way. Now, you can read all about this. I think it's in 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20 and in Isaiah 36 to 39. You can read about that story, and you can read about that God delivers, delivers Hezekiah and Judah, and there's great rejoicing. And then it seems to me that Hezekiah does what we always do. When the blessing comes, what does he do? He forgets to be dependent on God. And so we're told again, he gets this illness he's unable to find a cure to. And in fact, the word of the Lord says, uh, you're going to die. Once again, Hezekiah cries out to God because that's what we do in difficult times. We cry out to God then. We're really uh, keen about God in trouble. And so he cries to God and God says once again, no, you're not going to die. You'll live another 15 years. Res joy. And, and once again, Hezekiah lives by his own competence, happy by the gift that God gives. And once again, we see him forgetting God. Why? Well, because these dudes called the Babylonians come and visit. And Hezekiah, trying to live by his own competence, recognizes that they're going to be the new superpower. And he shows them all his wealth. And he shows all the stuff that he has in his treasuries, thinking he might be able to buy them off. And we're told that Isaiah once again comes and says, Hezekiah, you don't live by your competence, you live by your faith. Those Babylonians, they're going to come back one day. And they're going to totally wipe you people out and take every bit of the stuff you've shown them. Here's the lesson of Hezekiah. God is looking for us to be faith-filled. 
But the temptation for each of us is to forget God when we're in control, we're large and in charge, and living by our own confidence. We don't deny God's presence. We don't cry out to God in difficult times. What's the old saying? There are no atheists in foxholes, right? There are no atheists during difficult times? No. Uh, our tendency to be atheists, to treat that like God does not exist, occurs when we're enjoying prosperity and good things. And the reality is, is that God has called us not to be saved only by faith, but to live by faith. And the challenge is, is that as we grow in our competence in life, the challenge is, is to continue to invest in growing in our faith in God. And to grow in choosing to do things that force us to rely on God. Choosing to, to do things that, that, that remind us that we're to live by faith. And that may mean small things. It may mean big things. But it's a day-to-day, step-by-step, fulfilling the promises that God has called us to do. It's learning to endure difficulties when we really want to do our own thing, whether it be in relationships or whether it be in conduct or whether it be in work or whether it be in, 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 in our attitudes or whether it be in, in just uh, our approach to life. What Hezekiah has told us is that the way to be made right with God is, is not just a time we get life, it's a time that we learn to live life. This is where the Apostle Paul says it, but whatever were gains to me, whatever I got in this life, whatever is my competencies, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, trash, waste, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not by my competencies, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The prophets all remind the people of God of the same thing. God wants us to be faith-filled people. What does that mean? What does that look like? Jesus said, if you love me, the demonstrator of my love will be that you obey my commandments, that you will strive to live daily loving God and loving people. There's one way to look at it. Faithfulness needs that I will continually invest in things that strengthen my faith as I also grow in my competence in life. Faithfulness will recognize then in the good times, those are the times by which I need to make extra effort to focus on the goodness of God and to live the life of joy that God has given to me. See, God is calling us to faith and to be faith-filled. Let's pray together.
Thank you so much for the gift of life you give to us, Lord, and we thank you for the story of Hezekiah. We thank you for your grace and love, and we ask that you would help us to live by faith, faith-filled. In the name of Jesus, amen. We'll stand, we'll sing again. If you have a prayer need, we have guys that are available up front to pray with you in person. If you have a decision to make in order to, to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and to enter live a life of faith, then we encourage you to let them know, and we're ready here to hear your confession and to baptize you. Let's sing. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.